Welcome to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos in for Julia Chatterley, and we begin with the latest from Afghanistan. Chaos and gunfire near the airport in Kabul. Taliban fighters opened fire to disperse large crowds who have gathered, hoping to get out of the country. Meanwhile, in the city of Jalalabad, Taliban fighters clashing with protesters after they removed the group's flag from the main square. Witnesses telling CNN the Taliban fired into the crowd and beat some of the protesters. This as the U.S. and its allies continue to frantically evacuate their citizens from Afghanistan. The White House says the Taliban agreed to provide what they say safe passage to Kabul's airport for civilians. Meanwhile, Taliban negotiators meeting with the country's former president, Hamid Karzai, and other political leaders, assuring them of security. This comes a day after Taliban co-founder and deputy leader Mullah Baradar arrived in Afghanistan for the first time in 20 years. CNN's Clarissa Ward is near the airport in Kabul. She described the situation a short while ago to my colleagues. Take a listen. Let me try to explain to you the situation where we are. It's very hectic. You can probably hear those gunshots. We're about 200 yards, even less than 200 yards away from the entrance to the Kabul airport. We just drove through it quickly. It's absolutely impossible uh, to stop there. And I say we drove through it quickly. You can't drive through it quickly. It's bumper to bumper. Cars are barely moving. Uh, there are Taliban fighters all around. Uh, we actually did see them physically with truncheons trying to get them back. We have seen them and heard them a lot as well, firing on the crowds to disperse the crowds. It's a little difficult to see from this vantage point, and it's a slightly edgy situation, so I don't want to push our luck. But all along the roadside over there, there's just hundreds of people who are basically waiting, desperately trying to get out of the country. It's not clear if they have their paperwork in order, if they've been declined uh, and told that they can't enter the gates, or if they simply uh, don't have the wherewithal to get inside. Cameraman Will Bonnet's just panning off right now. You can see it's a pretty large crowd who's formed around us already because this is a slightly unusual situation to be doing live shots from here, I think. But um, it's definitely chaotic. It's definitely dangerous. I will say this. Uh, the Taliban appears to be trying to disperse the crowds, and there are crowds there of young men who seem to be just engaging in, like, criminal activity. I don't know if you heard that. Uh, they're kind of running towards the Taliban and then um, running away from them again, almost like it's a game. But, you know, when there's bullets firing like that, they're firing to disperse the crowds. They're not targeting people. They're not trying to kill people. But, of course, the minute you're firing willy-nilly when you have a bunch of civilians all over the road and civilian vehicles, people get hurt. That's what happens. Um, so there's not a huge amount of discipline, let's say, uh, to use a, an understatement in the ways in which they are dispersing the crowd. We did see some people behind the concertina wire implying that they had been able to get into that first perimeter. But I'm not going to lie. I mean, you're, you're running the gauntlet to try to get in there because there are so many different things going on. You can just hear the gunfire is pretty much constant as the Taliban tries to push people back. And as a result, you're just getting lots of people on the roads surrounding the airport, like the one we're on, less than 200 yards away. You're just getting lots and lots of people sitting by the roadside. Some of them have their bags and they're just 
obviously have no idea how they can get out. Well, could you just pan around a little bit more to get a bit of more of the scene? I'll step out to the side. You can see we've got this crowd around us. Uh, which is which is never great because uh, you know crowds are always a little bit dangerous. And most of these people, let me ask you, sir, are you waiting here to get out, or what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. The most of the people they're crowded in here. Yeah. They're working with the American, with the ISA. Right. They all have the documents for the recommendations, everything. Right. The Joe Biden every day they announce. We take these guys they're working with the American or with the ISA. Yeah. We take them to the America. But they are liars. Yes, they take these guys. They have. Do you work with the Americans? Yes, of course, of course. There is all like a more than fifty thousand people there crowded here. Today, all of them has gone to the homes. This is so less people now. They are here. Fewer people here now. Than yes, yes. A couple of days ago. Yeah, for the, our home is here. But all there is many flights did empty. Did you try to get in? Yeah, but the Taliban didn't lead you to go in. Why? If they did not lead you. What did they tell you? They're telling us just to stay here. The American says we take these guys. They have the American passport or American British, or they have the green cards. We take him. Otherwise, you you have to stop here or they stay here. We tell them we cannot stay here because every day, the Joe Biden says we take this all the uh, Afghan workers there. Help us. Right. We take him to the America. Have you but applied? In, have you tried to yes, apply? Yes, yes, of course. And what happened? They tell us you have to bring the uh, HR letter update for the 2021. But it's impossible. The, all the companies locked down in 2014. It's very hard to find Are the lots of people in the same situation. Yeah, all the same. They have an HR letter, but they doesn't have the recommendation letter. But most of them, have, they lost their badge. Right. So, so what's this, your message to America right it's now? It's our message to America. We help the American people. So that's their jobs to help now, right now here. There's a very bad situation if someone knew that you work with somebody. So the directs. I'm just going to thank you, sir. Can I just bring you in? You have a green card? Yeah, see, this is my green card. This is your green card. And He's showing me a picture right now of his green card. That's his green card. Back, back, yeah. let me shut up. So you have a green card? Yeah, and I have flight on, the, I guess, 20 right? this Friday. Right. I already fill out the application for the U.S. Embassy. Right. And this is the email that I got from the U.S. Embassy. And so did you try to get in to yeah, the airport? Yeah, I did. I, I did but and what did the Taliban say? Like the Taliban say, we don't know, just go. We, we don't want to try to let you in. Uh, and uh, like they say, we don't have flights. And we don't have they anything. don't have flights. Yeah, okay. they just say, but they do have a flight. You're talking about some of these people. They have their paperwork. This man has a green card. If you are a U.S. green card holder, you should be allowed to get into that airport. But the problem is, it is such a chaotic situation, and the Taliban understands how this looks. The Taliban knows that having thousands of people on the streets desperately trying to press into the airport because they're so frightened, because they just want more than anything to leave, they know that that looks bad. So it is not entirely surprising that the Taliban is not exactly embracing uh, this sort of mass exodus. Uh, the question becomes, what recourse do these people have? How can their safe passage be facilitated? And we're not getting any sense of how that could happen. Well, Western nations insist that they are doing their best to get desperate Afghans out of harm's way. But the reality on the ground keeps changing. A Dutch military aircraft was forced to take off without any evacuees on board today. 
because of the ongoing chaos at the airport. Pentagon officials say they are working around the clock to get people to safety, but they admit a lot can still go wrong. The speed of evacuation will pick up. Right now, we're looking at one aircraft per hour in and out of Hkaya. We predict that our best effort could look like 5,000 to 9,000 passengers departing per day. But we are mindful that a number... Well, President Biden is back at the White House this Wednesday. He cut his Camp David vacation short to deal with the ongoing evacuation efforts. Jeremy Diamond joins us now from the White House. We've just seen the scenes outside of the airport with our reporter on the ground, Clarissa Ward. You hear that people say they have the right documentation. They're being barred from going in. We're now seeing some scenes of the Taliban whipping people that are heading towards the airport. When we say still, still a lot can go wrong already, we're sitting in a fragile situation, Jeremy. What can the White House do? What can Biden do right now to try and ensure that this becomes a lot smoother as opposed to being derailed completely? Well, one thing that's clear already is that what the White House is saying, what the State Department, the Defense Department are saying about these evacuations, how they're proceeding and how they're going to proceed, is certainly not the reality on the ground as of yet. Uh, You know, we saw that yesterday the White House told us that about 1,100 people uh, were evacuated from Kabul airport on U.S. military flights. Um, that, uh, first of all, is far short of the goal that they're look, shooting for, which is five to 9,000 people a day. Uh, and even still, you can see there are these uh, people on the streets of, of Kabul who were speaking with Clarissa, who were saying that they have the paperwork to get on these planes, and yet they're not being allowed in. That is a stark contrast to what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was saying yesterday when he said that the Taliban had provided the U.S. with assurances that they would allow for the safe passage uh, of civilians who are trying to get to the airport to leave Afghanistan. Uh, Clearly, several of these people who were speaking with Clarissa said the Taliban were not letting them through to go to the airport. So this could be a paperwork issue, could be an issue of the Taliban not holding up uh, their promises, a whole range of things. But either way, this is not yet going smoothly, and the Biden administration desperately needs to start getting things to go smoothly, if anything, uh, to, to show that they can move forward from what has already been a chaotic and catastrophic uh, U.S. withdrawal uh, from Kabul that we have seen unfold over these last several days with people clinging to the hulls of military jets, trying to get, desperately trying to get uh, out of uh, the country. Uh, Now, uh, as for the president himself, uh, he is indeed back at the White House today. He's uh, going to be uh, doing an interview with ABC today where we expect him to be pressed further on the situation in Afghanistan. And then he's also gonna be speaking about the coronavirus and we expect him to also deliver an update on the situation in Afghanistan. But there's no question that the president is facing huge pressure, not only because of these images that are happening on the streets of Kabul, but also Democratic lawmakers as well as Republicans are really hammering the White House over this failure uh, to uh, uh, evacuate Afghans and Americans early enough Uh, So again, so many questions still, but even as the White House tries to shift to this effort that's happening over the next two weeks to get Afghans and Americans out of the country, it's clear that they are not there yet. Uh, And so there's a lot of questions that remain to be seen as to whether or not they can actually ramp up that effort. Because again, August 31st, as of now, is when all U.S. forces are set to depart Afghanistan. It's going to be tough to get all of those tens of thousands of Afghans and Americans out of the country before them. Yeah, and and time is running out. Thank you very much, Jeremy, uh, for that update. Much appreciated.
Right, the sacrifice in Afghanistan is seared into our national consciousness. Those words by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as he opened an emergency debate on the situation there on Wednesday. Mr. Johnson says the collapse of the country unfolded faster than even the Taliban predicted. He said he'd adopt a wait-and-watch approach to dealing with the Taliban. We must also face the reality of a change of regime in Afghanistan. We will judge this regime based on the choices it makes and by its actions rather than by its words. Well, CNN's Salma Abdelaziz joins us from outside the House of Commons with the latest. And he's saying a wait and watch approach, saying they won't judge by what the Taliban says, which we know the messaging so far has been quite on point uh, to try and allay fears. But in terms of what we're seeing on the ground, in terms of the whipping and some of the, the, the violence with regards to people trying to get to the airport, there's a big disconnect. Were some of those issues discussed today? Absolutely. And that emergency session, Lainey, is still going on in the House of Commons behind me here. I want to point out that it's August. This is not usual for members of Parliament to come together. It's also the first time that everyone's coming down, uh, coming together after lockdown restrictions were lifted. So a very boisterous, a very packed, at times a very passionate and angry criticism towards Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his government for this, the handling of what's happening in Afghanistan so far. But there was a few key issues there that you heard members of Parliament over and over again focus on in the first is, of course, those evacuations. What's happening in that airport? Not just the evacuations for British nationals, but evacuations for Afghan staff that supported the British government during these last uh, two decades. A lot of uh, concern that the British government is abandoning them, that it needs to provide the support uh, and, and the dedication to these Afghan nationals. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's response to that is a resettlement scheme, a scheme that will allow more Afghan nationals to come here to the UK in the course of this year. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying 5,000 Afghan nationals will qualify to come to the UK and seek asylum. Uh, of course, priority will be given to women and girls, minorities, people from vulnerable populations. Over the long term, this resettlement scheme could see up to 20,000 Afghan nationals uh, get to move here in the UK. There's also separately another uh, scheme, another plan to bring in any Afghan nationals who potentially worked for the British government. There should be about 5,000 there as well, a separate number. So huge numbers you're talking about evacuating out of an airport that still seems to have no semblance uh, of a system. There's absolute chaos there. A lot of questions being asked of the prime minister of how to handle that situation on the ground. He says he's coordinating with partners and key, he's coordinating, of course, with the Taliban officials on the ground there. That's why he made that reality clear, essentially saying we must accept the fact on the ground. We have to work with the Taliban to get these evacuations to happen. But again, a lot of criticism. One member of parliament, a really emotional moment, who is a military veteran, stood up and said, I've had to bury friends. I've had to see good men die. And for what? And I think in a lot of ways, Prime Minister Boris Johnson also echoing President Biden in, in, in sort of couching this as an inevitability, as at some point, troops were going to have to pull out. The UK was going to have to pull out when the United States pulled out. And 
at some point Afghanistan was going to have to become independent. Of course, many members of parliament feeling that that's absolutely escaping and evading responsibility. Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying there will be no inquiry into what's happened here. It's all about getting these evacuations, getting these people out and into safety, and then sort of kicking the can down the road, Eleni. G7 meeting next week. Leaders will be getting together. They'll be discussing the future strategy for Afghanistan. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that's what I'll be looking at next week. All right, yeah, and absolutely, and what it means regionally as well. Selma, thank you very much uh, for that insight. Selma Abdelaziz in London for us. Up next, the U.S. removed the Taliban from power 20 years ago for harboring 9-11 mastermind Osama bin Laden. Now, many fear the group will once again provide sanctuary to terrorists. Since taking Kabul, Taliban leaders have been insisting the group has changed. They're promising kinder, gentler government than the one that ruled 20 years ago. But as CNN's Sam Kiley reports, many Afghans remain deeply skeptical that the militants will stay true to their word or are even capable of it. Promises. We would uh, have uh, a new government an Afghan inclusive Islamic uh, government uh, promises women can continue uh, their education from primary to the higher education promises we do not want a monopoly of power Taliban 2.0 more moderate inclusive power sharing from 1996 to 2001 the ultra-conservative Islamists imposed a form of Islam that stoned homosexuals and shut female schools as it took over much of Afghanistan. <laughs> Women bore the brunt of this medieval ideology. The movement was toppled by NATO and Afghan allies intent on ending Taliban rule and the safe haven that it gave to Al-Qaeda's plots against America on 9-11. Al-Qaeda was routed, fleeing NATO into scattered exile. For the next 20 years, the Taliban fought back, taking territory slowly and refining its public relations. Less effort on oppressing women, more on building trust in local administrations. But millions of Afghans, especially in the cities, were encouraged to believe in the freedoms and democracy that were stamped out by the Taliban. So when they swept back into the capital, fear took hold. So if they have changed, why are they stopping women from uh, going to work? Why are they murdering artists? Do I have a space here to work for my people in my country or not? So we, we are risking our lives just for this answer. At the Taliban press conference in Kabul, its spokesman insisted that the movement had matured. But he insisted that all human rights, freedoms and especially the role of women would still be determined by Sharia law. To succeed in government, the Taliban may have little choice in the face of real politics. It will also need help from the international community. It's been burnishing its diplomatic credentials. Here, the leader, Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradur, sealing a deal with the US that's now widely derided for shepherding the Taliban to victory. But the movement has clearly signalled that it needs to govern rather than rule by force. The question is whether that is something the Taliban can, or even wants, to do. Sam Kiley, CNN, London.
As you heard there, the Taliban have harbored terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda. Now that they are in power again, there are fears that the country could once again become the nerve center for attacks on the U.S. and its allies. Despite this, U.S. has no clear strategy to target terrorists in the country, warns my next guest. Well, joining me now is Seth Jones, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seth, um, I'm sure you must hate to have been right because you had warned last year. You said a precipitous withdrawal uh, by the U.S. without a peace agreement between the Taliban and Afghan forces would be highly destabilizing and undermine U.S. security interests. And here we are today, a total Taliban takeover basically of Afghanistan with interesting rhetoric and changing messaging. But some of the images that we're seeing of whipping and still violence on the streets in, in some form or other kind of begs the question, are they really transformed? No, I think the answer is no. And I think the the easiest uh, evidence to show for that is the Taliban has controlled territory in Afghanistan over the past several years, northern Helmand, northern Kandahar, other areas of the country. And in areas that the Taliban has controlled recently, last month, earlier this year, they still have a deeply repressive ideology they have thrown out democracy. This is uh, the establishment of law by Sharia or Islamic law. They do not treat women respectfully. So the basic human rights violations. So I think the recent history of Taliban control of territory shows that they are not a fundamentally changed organization. So when we look at the messaging, because I think that a lot of people felt it was pretty surreal to see the Taliban's press conference being boomed around the world, where their messaging was very different to what we know them to be and their fundamental ideologies, they say, pretty much the same, like you say, centered around Sharia law. But they say that the violence ends here, the fighting ends here. But this surely must have emboldened other terrorist organizations operating within the region, and this could be a big cause of concern. Yeah, I think it could be a very big uh, cause of concern. I mean, it is worth noting that the Taliban continues to have strategic, operational, and tactical level relations with al-Qaeda, as well as a range of other groups operating in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. These are anti-Indian groups like lashkar e taiba or the Pakistan Taliban as well, um, just monitoring jihadist websites and platforms and chat rooms over the past couple of days. I mean, this is the most significant event, probably other than the Islamic State uh, overthrow of cities like Mosul that uh, jihadists have seen in the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, this is a huge, momentous opportunity for a resurgence of an extreme version of Islam. I, I think this is very dangerous. Look, we also know in, in the press conference they were talking about the Islamic Emirates and they really drove that message home. In the US right now, with Joe Biden still insisting that this was the right, there was no right time, but they had to do it at some point. We know there were flaws in terms of the exit. But what does this mean down the line and what should the US be doing? Should they find the strength to backtrack on this decision? Yeah, I, I think at the very least, the, the U.S. has got to prepare for a humanitarian uh, catastrophe in Afghanistan, large numbers of internally displaced persons and refugees. 
But I think on the national security front, the U.S. has got to prepare for a sustained counterterrorism campaign in Afghanistan, assuming that there is a resurgence of of uh, terrorist groups, including Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, both of which are currently active in the country. So I I I just don't see the U.S. Uh, uh, walking away with the national security threats that still exist in Afghanistan and frankly are likely to get more serious over time. Yeah, let's talk about the regional powers here um, as well that are at play. Let's look at the role that Pakistan has. And then you're looking at Russia, you're looking at China and what this means regionally in terms of a power play, because there's one that's going to ensue very shortly. Yeah, I mean, the 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 tragic reality for the the Afghan government that just collapsed is that other than India, it has been uh, completely abandoned by every major government in the region. And I think that's probably a major factor that contributed to the collapse of Afghan national security forces. Pakistan, which is the biggest backer of the Taliban, um, supports the Taliban and supported them uh, through their advancements over the last few weeks with intelligence and military support. Uh, The Chinese have provided diplomatic support. The Russians, as we know from leaked intelligence last year, uh, through its GRU, its main directorate for intelligence, has provided assistance to the Taliban, military assistance. And then even Iran, Shia Iran, uh, has provided sanctuary and some small arms support to the Taliban. So all of the governments in the region, really with the exception of India, are now backing a Taliban that they are not fully going to be able to control. So let's talk about the, the peace agreement, any kind of peace agreement. And, and this is what you warned about. You said that if the Taliban and um, the Afghan government didn't have a peace agreement before the exit, we'd be sitting in this situation. We also know that former presidents in Afghanistan are currently negotiating with the Taliban. That's going to be important. But you also aptly said that Afghanistan is not known to have you know, uh, been able to secure peace agreements in the past. Is there any hope right now? No, I don't think there's any hope. I think there's probably a short-term hope that uh, some Afghans and former participants in the government, individuals like Abdullah Abdullah, that they may uh, may be allowed to depart the country without being killed. But there's really no peace agreement here. I mean, what has just happened on the ground and the reality is that the Taliban has won not through an agreement, but through a military victory. And they will then ensure that the government that is formed the laws that are put in place are ones that they dictate. Again, this is at the barrel of a gun. So I, I don't think we should expect any kind of serious negotiations. They've just won on the battlefield and they're going to dictate that. All right, so thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. Seth Jones, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. After the break, the humanitarian crisis facing Afghanistan, where women and children make up half of the civilian victims. A somber warning from the International Rescue Committee. Up next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jarkas. Now chaos and gunfire erupting near the airport in Kabul. Taliban fighters opened fire to disperse large crowds who have gathered, trying to enter the airport, hoping to get out of Afghanistan. Meanwhile, in the city of Jalalabad, Taliban fighters clashing with protesters after they removed the group's flag from the main square and replaced it with the Afghan flag. 
Witnesses telling CNN the Taliban fired into the crowd and beat some of those protesters. For some fears, uh, for some fears about a crackdown on human rights are turning into a reality. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Kabul with a look at how some women are bracing for life under Taliban rule. At the central Kabul market, stores were open and people were back on the streets. Or at least some people. It was impossible not to notice that women here seemed to have largely melted away. One store was doing better business than usual. For more than a decade, Mohammed has been selling burqas, the head-to-toe covering once imposed by the Taliban. Business was good, but now it's even better, he tells us, more sales. Why do you think you're selling more burqas right now? Because the Taliban took over and all the women are afraid, he says. So that's why they're all coming in and buying burqas. Do you feel abandoned? Yeah, exactly. In an apartment downtown, we saw that fear firsthand. Until last week, Fazila was working for the UN. That's not her real name, and she asks we not show her face. She's petrified that the Taliban will link her to Western organizations and says she hasn't gone outside since they arrived in Kabul. You look very frightened. Exactly. Too much stress. It is not easy for a person to work a lot with international organization, having ten, more than 10 years experience of working with international, and now no one of them helped me. Just sending emails to different organizations that I work with you, but now no response. Are you angry? No, I'm not angry, but as a person that who worked with them, now I need their supports. It is not fair. You look very emotional as well. Yeah, because I'm thinking about my future, my daughters. What will happen to them if they kill me, two daughters with, without mother? The Taliban says they have learned from history and that women's rights will be protected. But many fearful Afghan women remain to be persuaded. We're on our way now to the home of a prominent female Afghan politician. She's told me that there are Taliban fighters outside her front door, so she's asked that I go in alone. Fauzia Kufi was one of the Afghan government negotiators during peace talks with the Taliban and has dealt with the group a lot. She says that promising change is not enough. They have to really prove it in the provinces uh, across Afghanistan. They have to show it by example. It's very easy to issue statements, but people need to see that in practice. Kufi has every reason not to trust. Last year, she was shot by unknown gunmen. The Taliban denied they were behind the attack. You have children? I have two daughters. And are they here? They are in Kabul. And are you concerned for them? or? I'm concerned for my daughters and all the girls of Afghanistan. I don't want history to repeat itself on them very brutally. 20 years of progress for women in Afghanistan now hangs by a thread. Clarissa Ward, CNN, Kabul. Well, as you saw in Clarissa's story, Afghanistan is facing a new reality under the rule of the Taliban. The charity, the International Rescue Committee, is warning the country was already fragile and facing a multitude of crises. Consider 40 years of war, 
chronic poverty, natural disasters driven by climate change, coupled with the ongoing pandemic. The RRC says that even before the escalation of violence, half of the population needed humanitarian help, and women and children made up close to half of all civilian casualties. It warns, without intervention, 2021 is on track to be the deadliest year for Afghan civilians in over a decade. Kiran Donnelly is Senior Director of Crisis Response and Recovery at the IRC and joins me now. Kiran, look, you were, you were sounding the alarm bells before the U.S. exit. And when we look at the civilian casualties since the beginning of the year, at least in the first half of the year, we're looking at women and children being the biggest group of victims here. These numbers are scary and they're absolutely harrowing of what potentially is to come. The numbers are absolutely scary. Uh, the International Rescue Committee has worked in Afghanistan since 1988. We worked with Afghan communities in Pakistan before that since 1980. So we have a, a perspective based on decades of history of working with Afghan communities through cycles of crisis. And what we're seeing at the moment is the impact of multiple intersecting humanitarian crises, the impact of years of conflict overlaid with the impact of a crippling drought across the country and the impact of economic challenges that are felt uh, in every part of the country. 18 million people in need of humanitarian assistance, over half a million people displaced this year alone on top of 3 million people at the start of the year, tens of thousands of those recently displaced uh, by fighting in recent weeks. The humanitarian situation uh, really is critical in the country and as, as, you, as you noted, this year is on track to be the worst year for Afghan civilians um, in, in over a decade. Kiran, you, you've worked with uh, the Taliban and other terror groups because of the nature of the work that you do. You're at the coalface of a lot of these realities that people have to face day in and day out. Could you give me a snapshot of the conversations you've had in the past with the Taliban and if it is at all different in terms of messaging and rhetoric and importantly action in terms of what we're seeing right now today? We're a humanitarian organization that works in over 40 countries affected by conflict around the world. And we work with all parties to every conflict to ensure that we're able to access and deliver our services to people in need, regardless of um, uh, affiliation. We deliver um, based on uh, the levels of need that people are experiencing, and we do so in a really principled way. That requires us to have conversations with whoever's controlling an area, whoever has access to an area. Today, that's the Taliban in Afghanistan. They are uh, the de facto authority on the ground, and they're moving to, um, to establish a government. Um, we are seeing initial signals um, that they are welcoming humanitarian actors, and we'll be working along with everyone else in the humanitarian community to ensure that we're able to continue delivering services to people who are in need, regardless of affiliation, regardless of gender, um, as, as best we are able to at scale uh, over the coming, coming months and years. What is important is to try and secure the safety and the rights of the girl, child and woman. And that is really going to be important. And perhaps that's one of the biggest things that's at stake right now. Are you worried that even though they say they've transformed and modernized, that because they're going to be operating within the parameters of Sharia law, which of course could be open to interpretation in terms of how strict one can be, that you're going to be sitting with a different crisis in terms of gender issues on your hands? It's a very uncertain and unpredictable situation in Afghanistan right now. We're seeing uh, signals uh, that the Taliban have uh, a different perspective than the Taliban of years past. We're also seeing other worrying signs on the ground. It's too early to tell. And as a humanitarian organization, our priority is really thinking about how do we get access to services 
for as many people as possible, including women and girls across the country. That's going to be our focus over the coming coming days is understanding, for example, with the tens of thousands of people who've been displaced into Kabul, how do we get out and reach them with life-saving assistance as quickly as we can? Um, so that's really what our focus is going to be. Absolutely. So, so you've also in your um, reports are talking about the efforts to resettle people and you're talking about the U.S. Uh, visas, that those people just make up around 1% of uh, Afghanistan's population. So the question is, what about the rest? And you're calling for neighboring countries to open up borders as well. How dire is the situation going to be if other countries do not try and assist uh, the resettlement of a lot of these refugees? I think it's incredibly important in any crisis that neighboring countries keep their borders open. People have a right to flee and seek safety if they have a fear of persecution and oppression. We'll see what happens um, in terms of the situation in neighboring countries. The IRC works to resettle refugees all over the world. We have offices here in the U.S. supporting those uh, Afghans and others who've who've sought safety and are building new lives here. Um, But as you know, uh, that's only a small fraction of uh, the people in need inside Afghanistan. And so... We're really committed to staying and delivering and working across all of the provinces that we have offices in. We have over 1,700 staff on the ground. Um, And so a big part of our focus is how do we ensure continuity of services? How do we ensure scale up on emergency response while working on contingency planning elsewhere in the region, urging governments to keep borders open to allow access and safety for refugees? Um, There's a lot in flux at the moment and information on those numbers of people moving is, is really hard to come by. Thank you very much, Kieran, for that, those insights. Much appreciated. Kieran Donnelly, Senior Director of Crisis Response and Recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much. Okay, and this just into CNN. Former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani is in the U- United Arab Emirates. The UAE Foreign Ministry has confirmed he was allowed in on humanitarian grounds. Ghani and his family fled Kabul on Sunday as the Taliban closed in on the city. His whereabouts had been unknown for the last three days. So just in, the former Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, is in the United Arab Emirates. We'll be bringing you more updates on the story as it unfolds. Just ahead, heavy rains disrupt recovery efforts in Haiti. As the death toll rises, we'll have a live report from the Haitian capital. Stay with us. The death toll from Haiti's earthquake has now climbed to over 1,900 people. Survivors are coping with widespread damage, hospitals are inundated and lacking supplies, and heavy rain from tropical storm Grace is complicating relief efforts. Many survivors are are stuck in remote areas with little or no shelter, frustrated with how long it's taking to get much-needed aid. We have been promised medicine. I went to look for it and I was told to wait. Yesterday they distributed aid, but I wasn't able to get anything. It rained a lot at night. We could not sleep. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing. Joe Johns is in Port-au-Prince in Haiti for us. Joe, the situation seems to be worsening right now. And of course, the main message is just how long it's taking to get assistance to some of these areas that have been hard hit. Eleni, there is an awareness that multiple countries, including the United States, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, which is right here on this island, Hispanola, with Haiti, all uh, to get 
supplies to people who need them in the affected area. And the question is, why is it taking so long? Uh, one of those reasons is because a lot of these supplies are coming in through Airbridge, in other words, helicopters, instead of on the roads. And the reason that they are not on the roads is very simple. Haiti has a long-standing problem with armed gangs controlling roads into and out of certain remote places like the, the uh, earthquake scene uh, that started obviously over the weekend. And it's such a problem, in fact, that within the last 24 hours, the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Relief, in fact, uh, put out a tweet uh, essentially uh, telling the world that there is a problem. I'll just read it to you. Despite humanitarian partners' readiness to respond, access restrictions to the affected areas due to the proliferation of gang-related activities is a key constraint. Without sustained and unhindered humanitarian access, thousands of people in need of urgent assistance could die. So it's a huge problem. And uh, frankly, the one thing this government can do and even the local authorities can do is figure out a way to restore law and order to the roads so that the supplies can get through to the people who need them. Eleni, back to you. All right, Joe, thank you very much for that update. And coming up after the break. As we witness monumental changes in Afghanistan, we'll get the reaction of world leaders Stay with CNN. Cargo is, I have to say, very positive in Africa. It helped well. It increased beautifully. It supported a lot of the aviation industry, the jobs, uh, whether it's in the airport, the cargo agents, the handling agents, ground handling agents, and so on and so forth. It kept some of the jobs going and some of the airlines going. And it's, it's, it's a positive point. Jomo Kenyatta International Airport in Nairobi, Kenya, handled the most cargo of any African airport in 2020. It's the central hub for Africa's leading cargo-only airline, Astral Aviation, which expanded its fleet during the pandemic. I'd now like to introduce you to the newest member of our fleet, the Boeing 767-200 freighter, which we started flying with the 1st of January this year. We have uh, very big plans for expansion in Africa. The first thing that we are planning to do is to increase our fleet from 14 to 20 aircrafts, which we will be doing over the next 12 months. And these are only cargo aircrafts. In addition to that, we are setting up a hub in West Africa and we are setting up a hub in Southern Africa. Astral Aviation is not alone in boosting its cargo capacity. Some passenger-led airlines have pivoted their business to meet the market shift. So right now we are sitting in a the world's first converted or repurposed uh, Dreamliner, the 787. And, and this one alone, we have dedicated it to, uh, to cargo, this and another one like this. During the pandemic, the airline boosted their cargo capacity by over 500 tons per month. Until now, cargo has been about 10% of our business. We want that to grow progressively to over 20% of our business. In other words, to double it within the next three to five years. Of course, our goal is to try and connect as many destinations, as many points as possible within Africa to our hub in Nairobi and, of course, to each other as well. We are predominantly an African operator. 
and uh, that's how we want to position ourselves because we believe there's a lot of potential uh, in the continent. So we continue to grow that niche. And returning to the situation in Afghanistan and world leaders are closely watching the Taliban's return to power. CNN's Awa Damon reports. The headlines blare the ugly, almost incomprehensible truth. After 20 years of war against the world's most powerful armies, the Taliban won. And those countries that once fought them are having to accept that they have to engage their former foes. The Taliban have won the war, so we will have to talk with them. In order to engage in a dialogue as soon as necessary, to prevent a humanitarian and a potential migratory disaster, but also a humanitarian crisis. After an emergency meeting Tuesday, the EU's foreign policy chief said that the bloc will not recognize, but will work with the Taliban if fundamental human rights are respected. But it seems that the main concern is how to prevent Afghans from flooding Europe and avoiding a repeat of the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. France, as I've said, have and will continue to do its duty, those who are most threatened. We will do our full part in an organized and fair international effort. But Europe cannot be the only ones to take on consequences of the current situation. The consequences of the current situation. In other words, desperate Afghans wanting to flee the Taliban. Before talking about quotas, we must first talk about security possibilities for refugees in the neighborhood of Afghanistan. And I will also discuss this with UNHCR. Then we can think about, as a second step, whether especially affected people can be brought to Europe in a controlled and supported way. As Europe scrambles to protect itself, Afghanistan's neighbor and fickle American ally, Pakistan's leader praised the Taliban's takeover as having broken the shackles of slavery. And where the West recedes, Russia and China will step in. The two countries' foreign ministers reportedly spoke by phone on Monday to discuss the unfolding situation. The fact that the Taliban show a willingness to consider the position of others, in my opinion, is a positive sign. And they said that they are ready to discuss a government in which not only them, but the other representatives of Afghan powers. All right, I want to take you back to our breaking news story. Former Afghanistan President Ashraf Ghani is in the United Arab Emirates. The UAE Foreign Ministry has confirmed he was allowed in on what they say is humanitarian grounds. Now, Ghani and his family fled Kabul on Sunday as the Taliban closed in on the city. His whereabouts had been unknown for the last three days. We are going to continue with this coverage and bring you updates in the next few hours. Up next, Hala Ghani with Connect the World. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.